All right. If you will take your Bibles, please, and open them up to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, or chapter 7, yeah, thank you. <laughs> wow. It's going to be a fun morning. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning this morning at verse 11. And if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Um, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change in the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is far more evident, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and its unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we continue to think about this glorious bag of blessings that has been brought to us under the new covenant, that you would stir our hearts, that you would let us recognize the truth that everything that we need has been provided in Christ, and that there is no lack in him, and therefore no lack for us. God, let us trust him. Let us rest in Christ. And let us do all that we do with an eye to his perfection and an eye to his intercession on our account, and never with an eye to ourselves. God, in all that we do, aim us at Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. So we come this morning back to this passage, and we're going to be here on verse 11 for a little while, just thinking about the perfection that has been granted to us because of the priesthood of Christ. And in this perfection, there is a a recognition that there was a lack in the Old Testament, and there was a lack in the Levitical law, and it could not provide what was necessary It could not give what was needed, and therefore, we have the fullness of God's provision for us in this new priesthood in Christ. And this is the point of the writer of Hebrews. This is the idea that he's been pushing throughout. Remember that the writer of Hebrews is not writing to Jews who do not confess Christ. He's not writing to Jews who say, no, 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 we don't believe that Jesus is Messiah. He's writing to Jews who believe in Christ and yet have allowed the Judaizers to sway them away from the purity of Christ to begin to move back to the law. So he's making the point that you cannot have both Jesus and the law. You cannot have both the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Christ. And you cannot expect to receive the blessings that have been promised to you in Christ if you are clinging stubbornly to the priesthood and to the Levitical law as your righteousness. And so he's talking about this perfection that has been given to us in Christ. And so we come this morning to the idea of this perfection, and I'm going to address the issue of our peace. Because the Old Testament law could not provide what was needed. 
The priesthood and the sacrificial system could only put away sin for payment at a future date. We know that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, but the payment made by Jesus Christ is a completely new type of work. It is a work of perfection, it is a work of completion, and it is the perfection of the work of our high priest, and it cannot therefore be unmade or displaced. It is complete in him, and it bears for us the full and awesome reality of the favor of God upon us. It is the provision of God for every single promise he ever made. Second Corinthians says that all of the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of the Father. So whatever it is that God promised is answered in Christ. Whatever it is that God tells us he's going to do or going to give to us finds its answer and finds its hope in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it is Jesus who has done everything necessary to remove every barrier. So I want to think with you this morning about the reality of what we have in peace. So it's kind of a strange thing to think about peace at a time when our nation is engaged in the fighting of two proxy wars. And yet, it's not a singular time in history. Looking back just briefly, I couldn't find anything in the last several hundred years that would indicate that there has ever been even a day when there somewhere on the face of the globe has not been at least one war being fought. We don't live in a world that is peaceful. You only have to walk down the streets of Topeka to learn that we do not live in a world that is peaceful. You have to just check out what's going on even here in our own little town and recognize that peace at best is a transient reality. We don't live in peaceful times, and yet the Bible promises that God's peace will be upon us. So has God lied? No. We know that God doesn't lie. So where's the problem? Well, the problem largely comes in our own expectations. What is it that God is promising when he promises us peace? Pardon? Inner peace. Okay. Primarily, it is peace with him, and that's where we're going to begin. It's the idea that God has given to us peace with him. Now, somebody's going to object and say to me, well, I was always at peace with God. I wasn't at war with God. I don't have a problem with God, but that's just not true. The scripture tells us that apart from God's mercy, every single one of us is at war with God. Isaiah 59.2 says, your iniquities, your sin, have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And that word iniquity is a really strong word for sin. There's several words in the Hebrew that are given for sin. And iniquity, best put, is ugh. No joke. It's, it's that ick, it's that ah. Oh, that's just vile. I cannot believe that you act that way, that you think that way, that you want those things. And what the scripture tells us is that this innate ugh that's us separates us from God. See, God will not have anything to do with our sin. He does not have anything to do with our rebellion against him. And so that barrier of our basic desire for everything that God hates creates the war. We are opposed to God in our deepest desires. It defiles us in every way, and it makes us not only unclean, but it also makes us unable to approach him. It makes us unfit for his presence. So even if we could break down the walls and break down the barriers of God's holiness 
and come into his presence and demand his attention, we would be consumed by his holiness and we would be destroyed by the fact that our own uncleanness is not fit for his presence. This is the reality of every person apart from Christ. There is a war being fought between us and God, and every thought of our hearts, every emotion, every single thing that we desire, every single thing that defines us in our basic flesh is something that is contrary to God. So you say, well, what about all the good people I know? Well, there may be nice people, but there are no good people. There is nobody who is good, and I say that on the authority of Scripture. Romans 3 tells us, no one is good, no one does what is right. There there are people who are nice, but there is no one who is good. And so for us as Christians, we have to recognize that we have to be clear about who we are, and we also have to be clear about who they are. We have to speak truth, and we have to speak truth with love and with care and with compassion But we are required of God to not compromise the message that they need a Savior because they are damaged in every way. Every single part of them is ruined by sin. The reality of the situation is that apart from God, there is not only no peace, there is no life. So while they may have the appearance of life, they move, they think, they walk around, they eat, they drink, they engage in things, they, they do all the things that we would say this defines life. The scripture tells us that they're not really alive. They're spiritually dead. And so were we. So in the end, how is it that we who were dead are no longer dead? The mercy of God breathes life into dead flesh and we repent of our sin. The mercy of God breathes life into us, and we see with clarity what we are in the sight of God. We cry for mercy. We say, God, I cannot believe that I have done this. I cannot believe that I have thought this. I cannot believe that I have wanted these things. And I am appalled at what I am. Suddenly, our, our iniquities look like ick to us as well. And what we ask for is for God to forgive us. We ask for God to overcome our sin with his grace and mercy and to forgive us. Now, this is a tremendous thing to ask because recognizing your own iniquity, recognizing your own inner ick, you don't come and ask God for forgiveness from a position of saying, I'm a good person. I I, I give money to the church. I'm there most Sundays. I I put on a nice face. I didn't slap that guy yesterday when he made me angry. I'm a good person. Amen? Is that asking for mercy? No. That's negotiating and at fairly low terms. (laughs) You're you're coming with a pretty poor offer. That's just a negotiation. And God does not negotiate with us. He does not negotiate for our salvation. He offers us the salvation purchased by Christ. And the only thing that gets it for us is his righteousness. And it's his mercy that we need. And it is his mercy that we receive that changes us. You see, Christ Jesus bore the weight of our sin. And he removed the offense that was between us and God. If our iniquities have separated us from God 
then the death of Christ had to do something to deal with that basic barrier. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we'll start at verse 19. Colossians 1.19 says this, For it pleased the Father that in Him all of the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So it gives us the truth that everything that is going to be reconciled to God has been reconciled to God. It's already done. There is no longer any barrier between somebody asking for mercy and receiving it because the sin itself has been put away. The iniquity itself has been paid for in the death of Christ. It says that he satisfied it, having reconciled us by what? By the blood of his cross. So remember what the scripture tells us about sin. It tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it tells us that sin itself demands a payment. It says that the wage of sin is what? Death. And that death is a required payment for the sin that is in us, and for the sin that we commit, and for the sin that we long for, and for all of the ick and all of the problems, death is the required payment. So there's two options for this death. One, you can die yourself and pay for it for eternity in hell. Or two, somebody else can die in your place who themselves has no sin to pay for, and that's an important component. There's only one person who's ever had no sin to pay for, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus willingly went to the cross and paid for our sin. And that sin, having been paid for, is no longer counted against us. Suppose I had a mortgage at the bank. And suppose my mortgage was $50,000. And I'm making payments on my mortgage and writing a check and writing a check. And uh, Graham comes into some money and he says, I want to bless the pastor. And he goes to the bank and he pays off my mortgage. And the next week, I come in to write a mortgage check. If the bank takes that check and says, thank you, we accept your payment, have they just stolen that from me? Yeah, they're not allowed to do that. They they cannot take that because why? The debt has been paid. If Christ paid our debt, our righteousness has no bearing on our forgiveness. God won't take that check. Does that make sense? He can't take that check because he's righteous and he's truthful. And if the debt has been paid, the debt has been paid. It's gone. So that means that the war that was established by our iniquity has also been ended because the war established by our iniquity was about the debt for sin. It was about the fact that we are in rebellion against God, but then God paid for our sin, Christ calls us to himself, gives us life, and when he does that, all of that is removed. The truth of the matter is, there is nobody found in Christ 
who is at war with God any longer. Now, you may still try to enact short rebellions when you feel jumpy. I don't know. You may think, okay, I'm going to do this because I'm going to get happy if I do this. But what you'll find is that you may do the thing, but you will no longer get the pleasure and joy from it that you used to get before. Oh, temporarily, and it's gone like that. Why? Because everything in you is no longer at war with God. And so that ick that God declared in in Isaiah, your own spirit looks at and goes, I can't believe I did that. There is no longer any satisfaction in sin when you are found in Christ. There is no longer any joy in it. Because God himself has made peace between you and he. And in doing that, there is no longer any room for sin to find a home in you. There is no longer any more room for sin to take up a pleasant abode. Now, you may force it into a closet, and you may force it to be there for a season, but nobody's going to enjoy it, you least of all. Isaiah 53.5 says that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He ended our rebellion. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. It is the cessation of the only hostility that actually matters. It is the cessation of our fight with God. Our war has ended because God himself made peace. Now this is ultimately the fulfillment of the ironic blessing that was offered over Israel time and time and time again. Aaron's blessing went like this. You'll find it in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you, what? Peace. This is the blessing that everybody in Israel was supposed to partake in. And, And God promised, if you guys are fulfilling the law and doing the things that I have told you to do, When the sacrifice is offered and the blessing is offered, I will be among you and we will be at peace. But it was a very temporary thing because immediately sin rose up again. This is why the sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over and over again. It's why the scripture tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Because in the end, what God has done has resolved the basic fundamental problem of our lives. He has blessed us with peace. He has blessed us with life. He has blessed us with the forgiveness of sins. Two weeks ago when I was here last, we spoke about perfect righteousness. And peace is what flows out of perfect righteousness. Peace is what we receive from God because righteousness has been satisfied. Peace is what we have in in our relationship with Christ. And ultimately, what we have is this giving of Jesus Christ graciously to us by God. God gave us His Son. He gave us His Son to pay for our sin and to pay for our debt and to pay for our iniquity and to pay for all of our rebellion against Him and to do so in such a way that He receives the glory and not us. 
Because if this is still transactional, we get some of the bragging rights. Amen? Amen. If God says to us, I'll pay this much, and you pay this tiny little piece, we can brag in that tiny little piece. And we will. (laughs) But what God says is, I will take nothing from you. I will pay it all. And I will require of you faith that you do not possess. And since you do not possess it, and I do, I will give you the faith that it requires to trust in me. I will give you life where you are dead. And I will give you a heart of repentance towards me so that you might repent because I am the one who has saved you and not you yourselves. It is the work of God from start to finish. And the peace that we enjoy because of it begins at peace with God. No longer do we live with the knowledge that God stands over us with a face of wrath preparing for our destruction. And beloved, understand this. Every single person that you deal with who is not found in Christ, at some level, is aware of that visage of God. At some level, they are aware that God stands over them prepared to execute judgment. And they know it because God has given them an ally on the inside called their conscience. They know what they are. They'll deny it to their last breath, but they know what they are. And there's no hiding from that inner voice. There's no hiding from the reality of that knowledge because you know what you've done. You might hide it from every other person. You might be able to deceive your family, your friends, your pastor, your your employer. You might be able to deceive the government. You might be able to deceive everybody on the planet. But you know your own iniquity. You know what you've done. And you know what you've thought. And you know what you've desired. So here's the good news of the gospel. All of those desires and sins and actions and the knowledge of that garbage has been paid for in the death of Jesus Christ. And the lack of peace that that naturally and necessarily brings to you has been taken away. It is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So peace with God becomes for us the peace of God. It is an outpouring of grace. It is the ending of the war and a new relationship that is ours in Christ. It is the truth that no matter what happens, God has brought us into his family and all of the blessings that have been promised to us in Christ have been granted to us. So this peace, this ending of the cessation of of hostilities, this idea that no longer are we at war with God, it is the fruit in our lives that gives us the sense of peace. From the foundation of the ending of the war comes the knowledge that God not only gave us all that was necessary to make peace, but he also gives us the peace that is his own character in us. He gives us peace in ourselves because of him. It is his own nature then that has been made available to us for our substance. What God provides is himself. 
He is the God of peace. Isn't he? Scripture tells us he is. Scripture tells us that he is the God of peace. And in fact, this is how Gideon knew him. In Judges chapter 6, the Lord was dealing with Gideon, and Gideon was afraid. In verse 23, it says, The Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abiezrites. So this is why Gideon did this, because he was dealing with a God who was still only partially appeased. He was dealing with a God who was still holding sin and putting it forward to be paid in Christ. And yet still, God lavished peace upon Gideon and gave him comfort and said, Don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to pour out upon you what you deserve. And that knowledge of God withholding it was so profound that Gideon called, You are the God of peace. This is who you are. You are Jehovah Shalom. Our God of peace. This idea is that no matter how we engage with God, our hearts long for peace. We long for God to not be at war with us. We long for God to accept us. And in Christ, he has done exactly that. He has adopted us into the family and he has given us his own presence as our peace. But those outside of Christ have not that righteousness can have no peace. In Isaiah, twice, God says, there is no peace for the wicked. In Isaiah 48, 22 and 57, 21, he repeats the words. I think he wants us to understand it. So for those who walk in wickedness and those who walk in unrighteousness, whether they say they love God or not, there is no peace. There's no way in the world that you can consistently, continually walk in sin and say that you are at peace with God. It just doesn't work. You might be a Christian who sins, and what happens? Your sense of God's presence, your sense of God's peace, it is disruptive because that is no longer your true desire. It's no longer you. But for those who are not in Christ, can they pretend that they're at peace? Can they pretend that they like their sinful life? Sure they can. But do they really? No. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for those who are still at war with God. In the end, they also actively seek war with those who love God. And we see this often in the world. We see churches targeted. We see Christians targeted. We see people who speak the truth about God hated by the world for simply speaking truth. It's important for us to recognize that this is not It's not an aberration. It's not a a blip on the radar. It is the basic nature of those who hate God. Jesus told us, don't worry, they're going to hate you, but they hated me first. Right? And they're going to hate you because I'm in you. They're going to hate you because my word is truth. But mostly, they're going to hate you because when you stand before them in righteousness... They see what they do not possess, and they see what they cannot possess apart from bending the knee to Christ. And they hate that reminder of their own inadequacy. They hate that reminder of their own inability to make themselves right with God. They hate the fact that they have to acknowledge 
that God has the right to tell them how they shall live and how they shall not live. What's the number one argument that's leveled against Christians? First, we're hypocrites. And secondly, we're, what's that J word? We're judgmental. Because we tell people what God says about their sin. Don't judge me. I'm not. I'm not judging you at all. I'm speaking God's judgment to you. If you have a problem, you have a problem with him. But in the end, they hate the messenger because the messenger brings a message that they do not like. Beloved, hear me. Please hear me. If you're going to engage in evangelism or engage in the proclamation of Christ, you need to put aside your own desire to be liked by everybody that you share Jesus with. Because they're not going to like you unless God is working on their hearts and he saves them. But even in in that instance, there's probably going to be a time where the relationship is fractured. Because what you're telling them is essentially the thing that their own conscience tells them that they hate. And what you're telling them is the last thing in the world they want to hear. That they have to submit to God and that they're not allowed to be God of their own lives. This is the way that the world works. And they are always, always fighting against us. In fact, it can be a little grating. Um, Psalm 120, verses 6 and 7 says, My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. We, We can feel that way. And we can feel like, okay, this whole sharing of the gospel thing is just not worth it because it it disrupts everything in my life and it makes all my relationships hard and it makes everything that I touch turn to ash in my hand and I'm just tired of fighting that fight. And it's very conceivable that even people who love Jesus and want to see him exalted can wear down and feel that way. But what the scripture tells us is that we, as God's messengers, are carrying the gospel of peace and that God views even our feet as beautiful. Amen? God views even our ugliest extremities as beautiful because we are carrying the message of the gospel of peace. We are carrying the truth of who Christ is. Look, we have to gird ourselves like men and conduct ourselves like warriors and carry the truth of the gospel. Ladies, you guys can figure that out too. (laughs) I don't mean to be exclusive and I don't mean to be exclusionary there. I just mean to say what the scripture says. Gird yourself. Arm yourself for war. Understand that the battle for the soul of the lost is a war. And the battle for the soul of this nation is also a war. And we can only fight it with truth. We can only fight it with the words of God and not with the words that will appease men. We can only fight for the soul of this nation by contending with the truth of Scripture and by contending with what God has said. Because it is only in that that true peace can come. It is only in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that peace is available. Psalm 4, verse 8 says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
And verse 11 of Psalm 29 says, The Lord will give strength to his people, and the Lord will bless his people with peace. So this is what's promised to us when we are engaged in the work of evangelism. This is what is promised to us when we are engaged in the proclamation of the gospel. It is the peace of God who both guards us and lets us rest, even though people might be hating us. And it is the peace of God that makes us alive. (laughs) It gives you joy, and it gives you purpose, and it gives you hope, even though things all around you are going crazy. You can know that peace is available. You can know that life is still in the hand of God. And if it's in the hand of God, it's good. It's beautiful. It's joyful. it's, It's the strangest thing to stand in the midst of chaos and be at peace. And yet that's what God gives us. The people around us are not our source of peace. So immediately when you start to feel like, if this person hates me for what I'm saying and what I'm doing, and that upsets me, and I'm, I'm unsettled, and my soul is not at ease, and I'm not finding peace, ask yourself the question, am I trusting in God for my peace? Or was I trusting in this relationship for my peace? Or am I trusting in a general awareness that people just like me because I'm a nice guy? I personally have never had that. <laughs> Because I'm not really a nice guy, and that's okay. What is it that you're resting in? Well, we have to rest in Christ. And we have to rest in His truth. And we have to rest in His power. And we have to rest in His peace. This is the peace of God that sustains us. And in the midst of chaos, we can still know the peace of God. Because it is derived from God Himself. And it is inextricable from our salvation. It's a part of what he gives us as being adopted into the family. It is his presence. It is his peace. And the circumstances of our lives do not negate it in any way. It calls us to seek after God with the fullness of everything that we are. So we have peace with God. And we have the peace of God. But we also have peace from God. So there is this experience of peace. This We have the reality of our peace, and we have the ongoing experience of peace when God just lavishes his love upon us and gives us this peace. And apart from this presence of God, we cannot know peace. It is focus-derived. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So right away, suppose you're feeling like, I don't have any peace because everybody in my life hates me, and you've already asked the question, what does that mean that I'm focusing on for my peace? Well, I'm I'm focusing on these people. I'm focusing on these relationships. I'm focusing on these things. I'm not experiencing the peace of God that I want to experience. Well, what's the fix? Well, the fix is to fix your mind and attention on God and on His Word and find in that the peace and the joy and the hope and the, and the love that has been promised to you in Christ. So Isaiah 26.3, again, we, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. We focus our attention on the problem rather than the source of our hope. The problem becomes all out of proportion. So whatever it is that you're worrying about right now, 
Whatever it is that you brought into the building this morning that you were frustrated about or concerned about or worrying about or or fretting over, that thing should not be the focus of your attention. And the more time and energy and effort you give to worrying about that thing, the less time and energy and effort you give to focusing on Christ. And the natural result of that is a diminishment of your experience of peace. Okay, You're not having less peace. It's not that God is suddenly now angry with you and back at war with you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you experiencing the peace that comes from God. And we have to be intentional and directional and focused in seeking after Him. We have to be focused in diving into His Word because it affects our trust to see the problems as more powerful than they actually are. Right? If, if I'm looking at the situation in, in the world at large and I'm saying all these bad things are happening and there's wars over here and wars over there and Israel's under attack and all these things and that's all I'm thinking about, suddenly I begin to feel and think like those problems are larger than God is. I've blown them all out of proportion because I'm giving them so much of my attention and so much of my heart and so much of my strength. But the scripture tells us that when we will fix our mind and attention upon God himself, the problems then are put back into a proper perspective. Because isn't it true that God is larger than all of our problems? There is nothing that you can raise that God is not more powerful than. There is nothing that you can have introduced into your life that God cannot correct. There is no circumstance from which God cannot deliver you. Just think about some of the testimony of Scripture. You've got Daniel being thrown into the den of lions that have been clearly starved to death for a very long time. You've got Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah cast into the fiery furnace. These men had a sentence of death upon them. And yet in the instance of Daniel, God shut the mouths of the lions. In the instance of the three friends, Jesus himself appeared in the furnace and walked with them in the fire. And when they came out, although the fire had been hot enough to destroy the men who were feeding it, they didn't even smell of smoke. Beloved, we so easily lose sight of the awesomeness of our God. We so readily fix our eyes upon the problems that we face instead of trusting in the God who is not only larger than our problems, but if we believe what the scripture says about God being who he is, has actually created the circumstances of our problems so that we might learn to trust upon him. They are contrived circumstances. Isaiah asked the question in, in, in the voice of God, and he says, If there is calamity in a city, has the Lord not done it? Elsewhere, he says, I make peace and I make calamity. All of these things are in my hand. This is the will of God. The circumstances that we are facing, the problems that are facing this nation right now, are the express will of God to teach his people to trust him that we might value him more than we value our things, that we might give ourselves to the work of the kingdom rather than the work of our own pleasure. 
And the things that we face and the things that we worry about and the things that we struggle with, they are all there to teach us who we are supposed to be. But when we fix our eyes on the problems instead of on the God who is sovereign over those problems, we lose our peace. We miss the lesson. Beloved, we have to be willing to trust God no matter what it looks like. We must always desire and seek to be thinking toward God's will and his ways. That has to be the focus of our mind. God, help me see the world through your eyes. Help me trust you. Help me live in such a way that everything that I do is about how you see the world. What is it that saved you? The blood of Christ shed for sin. What is it that drew you to him? It was God changing your heart so that you saw your own sin through his eyes. You need the same thing continually in your battle against sin. You must be spiritually minded. It's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and... What do you think is the next word? Peace. (laughs) We're talking about peace, right? To be spiritually minded is life and peace. You want peace? Learn to be spiritually minded. Learn to put your heart and your soul and your trust in Christ for the everyday things, just like you did for your salvation. Because therein lies your peace. Look, I know it's easy to worry. I know it's easy to to get all wrapped up in all the things that are going on because you have this stupid little thing in your house that continually tells you how bad things are. And you you carry one in your pocket. And every time you open up any of those apps, what's the first thing it shows you? War over here, disaster over here, terror over there. If that's all you're looking at, what do you think you're going to focus on? Beloved, carry with you instead the joy that is yours in Christ and begin to see the world through the eyes of God. Begin to see the world through the eyes of the one who owns the world, who knows its true shape. Because all of these other things are just a distraction. They're there to teach you that all of these things are going away. Instead, lean into God and find in Him your hope and find in Him your peace because it is the fruit of the indwelling Spirit of God that gives us the sense of peace and the overflowing abundant peace that we want to possess. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit gives you the peace that you desire. It gives you the peace that you long for. It gives you the peace that you must have. This is the will of God for you. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I've already told you in this world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What does this mean? Beloved, it means that the peace that we get from God is the peace that we have received of God 
which is the peace that we have inherited by having peace with God. All of it, our peace is derived from God. Every single aspect of it comes from him. And it is returned unto him. There's this cyclical nature of what God gives us. He gives us something, we hand it back and say, here you are, Lord. Now, I'm not saying that God is lacking peace when we are not walking in obedience. What I'm saying is that God gives us the peace that we have, not that we might hoard it like misers and say, I have peace and the world is going to hell. That's not the idea. The idea is that we use the peace of God as armament for our souls. Make sense? Because God calls us to share that peace. He calls us to carry the work of the kingdom under the uttermost ends of the earth. That's why he tells us that our beautiful feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need to put it on like the armor that it's intended to be. Because if you're going to carry the gospel, you should expect the world to fire darts at you. You should expect the world to hit you every chance it gets. You should expect the world to hate you. And you should expect the world to say terrible, awful things about you and to not want to be your friend. Okay. If we were obedient to God in the first place, instead of bringing home the pagan women for wives, we would have done what he commanded us to do and not establish relationships with them in the first place. And then their friendship wouldn't be that important. Amen? There's reasons why God tells us what he tells us. There's reasons why God commands us to live the way that he commands us to live. And in the end, he commands us to carry the work of the gospel unto the rest of the world. The work of righteousness, Isaiah 32, 17 says, will be peace. The work of righteousness will be peace. You have righteousness from God. If you are found in Christ, you have been given righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you are found in Christ, you possess righteousness. You have been given righteousness. It is an innate gift of God to those who are living. He counts you as righteous. But the work of righteousness is peace. The work of righteousness is to carry peace to the end of the world. And the effect of righteousness will be quietness and assurance forever. This means that a faithful proclamation of the gospel will bring peace of God into the lives of the lost. Now listen to what I said. A faithful proclamation of the gospel will bring peace. It means that you are not permitted to change what God has said because you're afraid the person you're speaking to is going to be offended by the thing that you're telling them. We're not permitted to pander to huge portions of, of the society's intention and say, it's okay if you live that way. It's okay if you think that way. It's okay if you do that thing. God doesn't mind. He's just desperate for your affection, so come as you are and don't worry about the rest of it. 
And sadly, that's the message of much of the church in America. That is not a gospel that brings peace. Righteousness brings peace. Because what is it that has separated us from our God? Our sin, our iniquity, our basic inner ick. And if that separated us from God, so much so that Christ came to die and pay for our sin, do you think that that is not what separates them from God? It is exactly what separates them from God. And so the labor of our lives and the labor of our love should be to carry the gospel to the world. Because in the end, we don't know who God will save. We don't know when he will save them. But since we're all still here on this rock sucking wind, we know there are people out there who he will save. Amen? Because when the last knee has bent to the, to the name of Jesus and the last heart has been made to live by his grace, our work here is done. At that point... It's all over. So as long as we are still here, there is still somebody who needs to hear. So I could put it to you this way. You hate the shape of the world. You want to go home. You want to die so you can be with Jesus. How about you just carry the gospel? How about you just seek to save every single person that you encounter so that maybe we can all go home? That work? Because that's the promise. The work of the gospel is the carrying of the name of Jesus Christ, and it is that which will bring peace. It will bring peace not only to the lost, but it will also bring peace to the world around the lost. The remarkable thing is, and if you stop for a moment and consider, since you have submitted to Christ, and since you have honored him with your life and with your love, has not the chaos that used to surround your life at least diminished some? Well, there's new problems. There's always going to be. But the things that were wrought out of your sin, that noise is gone. God calls us into this work because peace is our promise. Ephesians chapter 2. Look with me at starting at verse 14. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 2 starting at verse 14 says, He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So the thing to keep in mind whenever you're reading scripture is that when the scripture talks about two like this, like they and this, this group and this group. It's almost always talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. It's almost always talking about the people who were carrying the name of God versus the people who were not. 
Now that translates in the New Testament into those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. But in the case of this particular argument, what Paul is saying is that there will be unity brought between the Jew and the Gentile. Because remember, there is this pressure in the early church that the Christianity was only for the Jew. That was the message of the Judaizers. They said everybody who was going to be a Christian had to first become a Jew because Jesus was just for the Jews. It's kind of funny how that's reversed in the modern world and no longer do the Jews desire Jesus in any way except those who Christ has saved. And yet, the truth is, is that we, the Gentile nations who have been brought into Christ, are the ingrafted branches. We are the ones who have been brought in to the promise of God for Israel. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 teaches us that there will come a time where God himself will graft Israel back in. Now, I'm not talking about national Israel because not all of Abram are Abrams, not all of Israel is Israel. I'm talking about those among the Jewish people who are chosen of God and who themselves will be grafted in to a completed Israel, both Jew and Gentile. Look, it's not a secret that much of the world hates Israel. Much of the world hates the Jewish people. And it, don't, don't buy the lie that it has anything to do with the occupation of Palestine. It's an absolute lie. What it has to do with is the promise that God made to Israel the people. Not Israel the nation, but Israel the people. Which harkens back to a promise that God made to Abraham. And in the end, all the enemy of our souls wants to do is to thwart God at every turn. So in his mind, if he destroys the Jew, God can't win. That's a broken argument because God is bigger than Satan and he will triumph in the end. But that doesn't change what's going on here. This is a spiritual war against the chosen people. That the pogroms against the ethnic Jew throughout all of history have consistently been a spiritual war against the chosen people. And what's going on today in Israel and what's going on through Hamas and what's going on in the streets of New York as BLM and other groups are rallying for Palestine is the same war. It is a war against the chosen people. And it is the responsibility of the church to speak the truth of Christ into the void. And to speak the truth that the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles alike. And to speak the truth that for us as Christians, our responsibility is the gospel. Yes, we need to stand with national Israel because what was done to them was an abomination. It was evil. But don't lose sight of what's really happening. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the reason for the war in the first place. Because dead men no longer have the opportunity to submit to Christ. Does that make sense? Beloved, we have to carry the message of the gospel because it will bring peace. It is our calling to sow peace. Everywhere we go, we are to carry with us the message of Christ and to sow peace among the nations. 
every place that Christianity goes should end up leaving more peacefully than when we arrived. James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 says, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness, remember the work of righteousness is what? Peace. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's our calling. And it's for this reason that God gives to us His peace. Yes, God wants you to enjoy His company. Yes, God wants you to enjoy the blessings of being His own. But keep in mind that any time you take the blessing of God and you get it to yourself and you go, it's mine, it's my precious, you're going to warp that blessing every bit as much as Gollum warped the ring or the ring warped Gollum, right? You're going to become twisted up by it because you think that it was for you, but nothing that God gives you is only for you. He gives you His peace so that you might share His peace, and He gives you His peace as armor so that when you walk into the battle and everybody's throwing rocks at you, you're going to stand up because your peace rests in Him and not in them. But if you don't have this right, the first time somebody says something mean, you're going to go, I'm done. I'm not doing that again. I tried to share the gospel once and they got mad at me and I, I'm just, I just can't have that noise. I'll practice friendship evangelism. I'll be their friend forever until they ask me about Jesus. And then I'll give them some sort of soft answer because I don't want to offend them because now they're my friend and I really need them. It's not much of a friend. Beloved, carry the truth. Be friendly. <laughs> Don't be ugly. <laughs> but carry the truth. Speak the truth. Speak it boldly. Because the peace that they need comes from the truth of the gospel. And the peace that you need to do that comes from the truth of the gospel. And the peace that girds you and arms you and equips you and makes you able to promote everything that God tells you to promote comes from the truth of the gospel. And it comes from the fact that God keeps his promises. Here's the glorious part of it. The faithful proclamation of the gospel will bring priests into the church by bringing the one mind of God to the disunity that marks the church in America. What is the answer to all of the disparate nonsense that goes on in the church in America? It is the same answer that goes into the world. It's called the gospel. Because he has given us a heart of unity. And he has given us the peace that transcends all of these things. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, The God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So then as we labor for the truth of the gospel out there, we also are laboring for the truth of the gospel in here. It means that we have to be clear about what it is that we believe and why we believe it. It means that sometimes, even within the church, we're going to have conversations that are challenging. We're going to have conversations that are sparky. 
We're going to have conversations that might be painful, that might be difficult, and yet they are necessary for the truth of the gospel to be faithfully proclaimed. So not only do you sometimes need to have your armor on out there, you also sometimes need to have it on in here. You need to shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You need to put on peace so that when you have a difficult conversation with somebody, when the Lord presses you to say something that somebody just might not like, they might get riled up, but you won't. And I learned a long time ago that you can't have an argument by yourself. It's just no fun. If I'm going to have an argument, I want an active participant on the other side of the table who's going to yell and scream at me so I can yell and scream at them and feel okay with my sin. But if I'm riled up for a fight and the person that I'm going to fight with just looks at me and goes, it's okay. Where's the fun in that? Beloved, carry the gospel of peace as what it is designed by God to be. It is your armor and it is your commission. Because Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the end, carrying the gospel is the most hopeful thing you can do. Because it expresses a belief that God means what he says and does what he promises. So we carry the gospel to a lost world and we carry the gospel to churches that are in rebellion and we carry the gospel in the midst of darkness all around us because God is exactly who he says he is. And he will do everything that he promised. And all of his promises in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. To the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to honor you and to love you and to rest in your grace. And God, I pray for an outpouring of your peace to be upon our hearts. Lord, let us understand that this peace that you give to us is given for us to carry. And let us carry the gospel with the proclamation of the name of Jesus. And let us be gloriously overborne by the peace that comes when Christ is honored. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.